As you all know, we are on the eve of another presidential election year. Uh, A year from now, less than a year from now, we will have for ourselves a new president. This morning, I'd like to think with you briefly about one of the issues that will be important come next November. It hasn't been on the top of the list yet, but it will be on people's minds 11 months from now. And that's the issue of unemployment. Unemployment. Many Americans are concerned that the federal government produce for us an economy that's conducive to creating new jobs and keeping old jobs and keeping old jobs from going overseas. And many Americans, as you know, vote with their pocketbooks. Therefore, every presidential candidate who actually hopes to win the election has to have a position on this issue. He has to have something sensible to say about the economy, particularly about creating new jobs, about reducing unemployment, and so on. They all have to have something to say on this. But one thing that none of the candidates can say, though they may think it, and surely they know that it's true, but they cannot say to us that part of the problem of unemployment is that some Americans simply don't want to work. Some Americans simply don't want to work. Able-bodied Americans. Many of them are content with simply feeding on the system. You won't hear any politician saying that in the next year. Whatever you think about the background of that problem, whatever you think about the solution to that problem and the politics of that problem, there's no denying the problem. Some people simply won't work. I think of the the able-bodied disability recipient who says to himself, I could get a job, but if I get a job, I'll lose my check. I'm not going to do that. Or the guy in the unemployment line who says to his buddies, I could get a lot of jobs, but why bother? Unemployment's going to pay me, and it pays better than the jobs I could get. Or the teenager who says to her parents, I ain't working at no McDonald's. The truth is, We live in a country where lots of people just won't work. Now, we're thankful to live in a country where people who genuinely need help can get help. We're thankful for that. We may sometimes disagree on how far that help should go or, again, the political values behind it. That's not my goal to talk about today. We can talk about that later if you like. But today my goal is simply to demonstrate to you from our contemporary culture that 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-18 is very relevant. Because in these verses, Paul is dealing with some people in the church at Thessalonica who might fit quite well into modern America. Namely, people, verse 11, who simply didn't want to go to work. He says, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So a different culture, and we'll talk about that, a different government structure, but the same problem in Thessalonica as exists today. Now the question is, why is Paul so concerned to be in these people's business? Who is Paul to tell them that they have to go out and get jobs? Why is Paul so upset and concerned about people's work status? We'll come back to why it is that he could speak to them uh, about these issues, but the reason he's so concerned is a couple of reasons, actually. First, because he knows, as you and I should know, that All of us are sending out a testimony into the world that we live in, aren't we? And lazy people send out a poor testimony of Christ and His church. 
And he's also concerned because in his setting, the unemployment line, if you will, went right through the front doors of the local church. In the Roman culture, which is the culture in which we're dealing here in 2 Thessalonians 3, there was no welfare system. If you couldn't afford to feed yourself for one reason or another, a legitimate reason or or an illegitimate reason, the place you went was to your extended family. And if you were a Christian and you couldn't feed yourself, the place you went was to your church family. Number one, because that family became, in many cases, more of a family than your uh, regular family, your physical family, but also because many times the physical family would abandon you if you became a Christian. And so Paul knew with the people that he's dealing with, if they can't afford to feed themselves, the place that they're going to go is the local church. The local church is going to feed them. We read about this in the church at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 4, 34 and 35 says, There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. The plan was a beautiful plan that the church came up with. The plan worked. There was not a needy person among the early church in Jerusalem. It's a plan that needs to be imitated and implemented by churches today. But the point of 2 Thessalonians 3, and we can see it in verse 11, is that there had to be guiding principles to protect it from abuse. So like the leaders of our country today, Paul had to have something to say about charity and about work and about unemployment. And in this particular passage in particular, he has something to say not to widows, not to legitimately disabled people, not to the working poor, not to the fellow who's been laid off and is needing help getting back on his feet, not to uh, stay-at-home moms because they have harder jobs than all of us. Rather, the, the person Paul is speaking to here is the person who is able to work and the person who refuses to work and who is content then to mooch off the church's unemployment program. So listen to verses 6 through 18 and hear all that he has to say. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition from which which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, And eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So what is Paul saying here, and how does it apply in the 21st century? 
Now, initially, I realize that some of you may be thinking, because I thought my, myself this week, well, I work 40 or 50 hours a week. Some of you work more than that. So I'm not sure this passage applies to me at all, you may be thinking. Well, I hope that in many ways this passage doesn't apply to you. I hope that verses 11 and 12 don't need to apply to you. I hope that you do work hard for a living, and that you're not glued to your sofa like some of these people in Thessalonica were. But if that's you, and for many of you it is, I want you still to see that God has something to say to you this morning. If for the simple fact that this is His Word, it has something to say to you. But I want to show you three reasons why I think all of us should listen. Three reasons why 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-18 is important. Number one is that these verses are culturally relevant. They're culturally relevant. We made a start this morning by pointing out that the problem of 2 Thessalonians 3.11 is the problem of the American public in some ways. And because the church is a gathering together of sinful people, then surely if there's a problem in the American public, there are going to be instances of that problem in the local church. And so it is with the problem of willful unemployment. It creeps into the church from time to time as it did here. So though you may not be a part of the problem, you have to recognize that you live in the middle of the problem, both in the culture at large and perhaps sometimes in the local church. And you need to know what the Bible says about the times in which you live. And along those lines, I want you to notice, and I'm sure you already did, that Paul doesn't exclusively speak to the lazy people here in these verses. In fact, he has more to say to the rest of the church that's trying to help them. And so there's something for all of us. The passage has something to say about how to combat this problem, both within the church and I believe that there are implications here that you can work out for how we should think about government and culture. So, number one, the verses are culturally relevant. Secondly, these verses may someday be personally relevant for you. They may be personally relevant. In other words, before any of us pats ourselves on the back this morning and says, I'm so glad I'm not like those lazy Thessalonians. I've worked hard for everything I've ever gotten in life. Let's remember a few things. One is that it's quite possible that at one time these same Thessalonians that Paul speaks about in verse 11 thought just like we do. It's, one, it's possible that at one time they would have said the same thing. I can't believe people don't go to work every day. I can't believe that these people continually lay on their couch. Now, all of a sudden, their tune had changed. Why is that? Well, maybe they found themselves unemployed for reasons that they couldn't help and then just got stuck in a rut. That's not okay, but you could see how that would happen. Perhaps something happened in their lives, some devastating thing, and you can imagine this, that just took away their desire to get up every day and go. And that happens to people as well. And some people have suggested, and I think this is at least part of the problem, that there was a theological problem in Thessalonica. Namely that, uh, as we saw in chapter 2, some people were so infatuated with the end of the world that they thought that there was no point in carrying on with the day-to-day tasks of secular jobs, whether it be raising their cattle or building houses or raising children or selling pottery or whatever it may be. And so they just quit and they said, we'll give up. Whatever the case may be, I want to say to you this morning, how do you know that someday you're not going to end up in the unemployment line and get stuck in a place where you just can't make yourself go out and knock on doors and pound the pavement? How do you know 
that the loss of a spouse or a child may not so drain you someday that you lose your drive to work. You don't know that. And so what we need to say this morning is, number one, we need not to judge too harshly the Thessalonians or other people that may be like them, but we also need to say this morning that who knows whether or not these words hidden away in your heart this morning may come back to be very helpful for you someday when your circumstances are quite different than they are today. So these verses are culturally relevant. They may someday for you be personally relevant. Thirdly, they're spiritually relevant. Now what I mean is that the main application this morning obviously is, is in the realm of our daily employment. Teaching a class, cleaning a house, driving a truck, writing a sermon, whatever it may be. But I want you to see, and I'm going to try to point this out as we go along, that there are some secondary applications that can be made from these verses that don't directly have to do with employment. Paul's admonitions about laziness can be applied to other kinds of laziness besides not going to work. They can be applied to spiritual laziness. People who are spiritually, verse 11, leading an undisciplined life and doing no work at all. Is it possible for someone to work 50, 60 hours a week and yet be spiritually lazy? Of course it is. It's possible to be spiritually unemployed. Not reading, not praying, not studying, not serving in the church, not growing in the Lord. And so that may apply to you. And we, we will hopefully point that out a few times as we go along. Paul's words also could apply to other kinds of laziness. I thought this week of familial laziness, namely fathers and mothers who are so busy with other things that they're doing no work at all in their relationship with one another or in their relationship with their children. At least not as much work as they should be. You may think of other ways, other kinds of laziness, other kinds of unemployment that may apply to you. But I think there's something to say in secondary places for us. So we need to let God speak this morning. Whoever we are, we need to let God speak. And if we let Him speak, if we look carefully at Paul's comments, we can see that when a person chooses not to work, chooses not to be a productive member either of the church or of the society or both, great problems are created. And that's where I want to go from here. I want to show you that there's a fallout of unemployment. You remember uh, when the great uh, nuclear fallout problem happened in Chernobyl. And to this day, there are still leftovers of that problem. To this day, that area is uninhabitable and people still turn up with diseases to this day. And what I want to say to you is when we don't work as we should, there's a fallout that leaves a residue behind, particularly here in the church. And I want to point that out to you as we go through. I think I wrote down five, five things that happen when people are willfully unemployed. Number one, when people are willfully unemployed, they become a burden. They become a burden. Now in verses 7 through 9, we read Paul reminding the Thessalonians that even though he could have rightly taken up offerings and received a salary from them in Thessalonica, he chose not to do that. Instead, he says he went out, he got a secular job, and he worked bivocationally. And the reason he says he did that is to prove a point. He wanted to show the Thessalonians, because there was a problem with people not working, he wanted to show them that no one in the church should be an undue burden. Verse 8, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. That's why they worked night and day. And he brings it up now again. He's gone from them. They've seen the example. Now he reminds them of the example to remind them of that principle. No one should be an undue burden. 
In other words, it's not right, he says, for capable people to weigh down the church by refusing to work and living off the benevolence fund. Again, he's not speaking about widows. He's not speaking about orphans. He's not speaking to the working poor, to people who are doing what they can do and still need help. That's not who he's speaking of here. All of those folks, he and others will say elsewhere, the church should and must care for. Here he's speaking to people who are simply couch potatoes living off the system. They become a burden. Secondly, when people are willfully unemployed, he says they cannot support the ministry. Now you have to look closely for this, but I want you still to think about verses 7-9, through and I want to point out to you that there was another reason why Paul sometimes worked a secular job when he was out on the mission field. The first reason, at least in Thessalonica, was to set an example for them because there was a problem of unemployment in the church. But he also sometimes didn't take a salary and worked a secular job because the churches that should have been supporting him weren't supporting him as they should have been. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 9. He scolds the Corinthians because they are picking at him um, and criticizing him. And he's reminding them, the whole time we were there, we didn't even take anything from you. We gave you everything we gave you for absolutely nothing. And the reason is because you guys didn't support us. And then he also criticizes them for not supporting the other work of the ministry that's going on, the giving to the poor that he was trying to do in Jerusalem. The Corinthians were lagging behind in their support. Now, my point here is simply that one of the reasons Paul worked a secular job in Thessalonica was likely because of churches like Corinth who weren't supporting him as they should. And so you have to ask, why were some of the churches so stingy with Paul? Well, for some of them, surely it was that they were just selfish. But when we read about what was going on in Thessalonica, we have to wonder if the lack of support sometimes for Paul from some of these churches is because not everyone in the church was willing to pull his own weight financially. It seems obvious, but many people never think of this. If I don't work, or if I don't work as I should... I can't support the church as I should. I can't support the missionaries as I should. I can't support the poor as I should. It's important. And our laziness can end up robbing God. So people who are willfully unemployed, number two, cannot support the ministry. Thirdly, people who are willfully unemployed set a poor example. One more look at verses 7 through 9, and you'll see that the reason, again, why Paul didn't take a salary was to set an example to them. Not that it was wrong for him to get paid. He says in verse 9 that he could have, and elsewhere he did. But in Thessalonica, he didn't take a salary to be an example, to prove a point, to serve verse 10 as a model for you, he says. And the model was, again, to combat the problem of laziness. He didn't want to give the couch potatoes any excuse for their behavior. He wanted to show them in every way possible that Christians are people who work hard for the Lord. As he wrote in Colossians 3.23, Christians are people who do their work heartily as to the Lord and not for men. And what I want to say is a transition from Paul saying, I want to set you an example, Thessalonians, to saying that we need to set that example as well. All of us need to set the example of working hard for the Lord. We don't want our children or our neighbors, or our co-workers to discount Christianity because they look at us and say, Christians are a bunch of lazy people. Our work, our hard work, is one of the best testimonies we have, especially in school and in the workplace. Christians ought to be the hardest working people in any job 
and in any schoolhouse. So thirdly, people who are willfully unemployed don't set the right example. Fourthly, when people are willfully unemployed, they become busybodies. They become busybodies, verse 11. If you've heard the phrase, I'm sure all of you have heard it, idle hands are the devil's workshop. That's not in the Bible, but it's pretty accurate, isn't it? It was true in Thessalonica. The people who weren't going to work in the morning had way too much time on their hands. And apparently, because they had so much time on their hands, they had nothing better to do than to meddle in the affairs of other people and to become the self-appointed neighborhood watch. Especially the neighborhood watch when it came to dealing with other people in the church. They were acting, verse 11, like busybodies. Now, growing up, uh, we had a neighbor who lived next door to us, uh, and she always knew what was going on in our, in our house. Um, she, would, she would call and say things like, I saw that you all uh, ordered and had delivered two pizzas and a two-liter Pepsi and a 12-piece uh, hot wings to your house yesterday. I mean, she knew what was going on in the house sometimes to the point where we wondered if she had surveillance cameras or mirrors or something set up. Now, she was a nice old lady, but do you know what usually happens when people are busybodies like that, when they're always, uh, always uh, not having anything to do themselves and always working uh, at finding out what everyone else is doing? What happens usually is that they eventually see something that you do or that I do that they don't like. And they become bitter, they become jealous, they become judgmental, they become gossips, they begin to criticize, they begin to make themselves a general pain in the neck. And that brings me to my next point. Not only do people who are willfully unemployed become busybodies, but people who are willfully unemployed, number five, create strife. They create strife. When you read the book of 2 Thessalonians from front to back, it's clear that there was strife in the church. That's why it's significant, incidentally, that Paul in verse 16 prays that the Lord would grant them peace in every circumstance. That's not just you know, what the pastor is supposed to say at the end of his letter. He's actually praying that God would give them peace. And the reason he prays that God would give them peace is because they hadn't had peace. Instead, they had strife. And there was strife from without. We learn in the book of Acts that this church was being persecuted by their neighbors. But there was also strife from within. There was theological strife. Again, these people who were saying, Jesus has already come and you've missed it. But there was also strife created by these unemployed busybodies. And you can imagine that. Perhaps the strife was over the finances. People were saying, listen, we can't support Paul because we're supporting X. And he needs to just get up and go get a job. Maybe there was that kind of strife. But there was also the strife that happens when people become busybodies and they're in everyone else's business and they're gossiping and they're judging and all of a sudden everybody's angry with one another because he said and she said and they said... And now all of it could have been solved, or a lot of it could have been solved, if people would have simply gotten up and gone to work in the morning. All sorts of problems that can be created when people are willfully unemployed. Now, before we move on, I want to point out that in examining all these negative things, all the negative fallout of of this kind of unemployment, we can see in the reflection of that, if we look carefully, we can see in the reflection a positive theology of work. We see a negative theology of unemployment, all the bad things, but we can see a positive theology of work in it. In other words, why do we work? 
Why do we pursue employment? We'll just reverse everything that we've said about unemployment because it enables us to support our families. That's a good reason. Because it prevents us from being a burden in the church. It allows us to support missionaries and pastors and ministries to the poor. It serves as a testimony to our neighbors. It keeps us from becoming busybodies. It promotes peace in the church. All these are wonderful reasons when you wake up tomorrow and your alarm goes off and you say, I don't want to go to work today. Now you have a list of six reasons why you should go and why you should go every day. Wonderful reasons for every able-bodied person to get to work. Now let me pause here and say something to to those of you who may not be able-bodied. You're retired perhaps and you don't need to work financially and so there's not a problem with being a burden on the church. Or perhaps you are disabled uh, legitimately or or some other reason. Um, Let me say something to you as well. You need to be involved in a productive regular task. This isn't all about being gainfully employed. Part of the reason, part of the problem was people were a burden financially, but that's not the whole problem. A large part of the problem is that people became busybodies. So it's not about gainful employment. It's about having something productive to do with your life, having a plan of how you're going to impact your world. Maybe for you it's that you volunteer in some ministry or that you get involved in something in the church, but that you do something productive. You don't just busy your body, but you do something that is productive. All of us can do that. So this is one of the places where I mentioned that I was going to divert our attention briefly onto thinking about spiritual unemployment. One of the problems for disabled people, for retired people, is that they have lots of time on their hands and they have no way to productively spend it. But it's also a problem for other people who have time on their hands and no way to productively spend it. It's a problem for people who have an empty nest. It's a problem for college students. It's a problem for many of us on evenings and weekends when we're not at work. Because work-wise, we really have it easy in this country. Some people said, I had to work 50 hours this week. That's maybe difficult in comparison, but compared to the rest of the world, we have it really easy in everything, really, and especially in the way we work. And that means that most of us, not all of us, but most of us have a lot of free time on our hands. And we can either use that free time wisely or we can use it unwisely. And we want to use it wisely as believers. Surely we can think of dozens of ways that we can do that. And we all would say, yes, we should use our time well. But I wonder how many of us are really doing it. I wonder how many of us are reading as we should. Out serving others as we should. Praying as we should. It doesn't all have to be movement of your body. Sometimes the employment that God may call you to is to pray. Some of you have time to pray that others don't have. How important that would be if someone was praying for every member of the church, maybe every day, if you have your days free. What we need to see then is that spiritual unemployment is just as bad as physical unemployment. And it has the same kind of fallout. If we're spiritually unemployed, then we cannot feed our souls. Just like we can't feed our bodies, we can't feed our souls if we're spiritually unemployed. If we're spiritually unemployed, we become a burden to the church because the church needs every single part in the body to be fully functional. If we're not, then we become a burden. If we're spiritually unemployed, we can't minister to others as we should because there's nothing that we can draw on. God hasn't fed us or we haven't allowed Him to feed us and we have nothing then to offer others. If we're spiritually unemployed, obviously we set a poor example. 
we're spiritually unemployed, we can become quickly judgmental and bitter. Because we're not letting God deal with our own hearts every day. And so it's easy for us to just forget that we've got problems of our own. And we begin to look down our noses at everyone else. So, as I said at the beginning, let's not think that if we have a 9 to 5 or an 11 to 7 or whatever it is for you, that all of a sudden we've done everything that needs to be done and, and said everything that needs to be said from these verses. Jesus said... Let us work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. And I think what He meant is, let's not fool around. Let's not fool around with our evenings, our weekends, or whatever time it may be that we have free. Now, we begin by saying that every presidential candidate this coming year is going to have to have a solution uh, for the problem of unemployment. It may not work. It may not be genuine. But he's going to have to say something. And while we realize that uh, sometimes there's more that goes into it than um, what Paul is about to say, we have to say that Paul has a pretty good platform. Paul has a pretty good speech on unemployment. Paul has a pretty good solution, I think, in verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That would change a lot of things in our country if we just put that in practice on a national scale. But I want you to notice that though Paul says this, and it seems like the main solution, it's just part of his overall solution to the problem. Really, he gives a two-part solution. What do we do about this problem in the church? What do we do about it? Well, his first part of his solution is get a job. That's verse 12, isn't it? Get a job. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Now notice a few things with me there. First, I want you to notice that verse 12 doesn't come in the form of a suggestion. This is not Paul saying, you know, if you would go out and get a job and be gainfully employed, it would really improve your self-esteem. I think it would be good for you. That's not what he's saying here. That may be true. But what he's saying here is such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion. And he doesn't just command by virtue of his own importance or his own position as an apostle or in light of his own example that we saw. He commands in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying it's not just my will for you, it's Christ's will for you. And to disobey would be to ignore and dishonor Christ. Notice also that Paul doesn't say, I command you to get a job. Unless you can't find one that's commensurate with your education and experience and your preferred standard of living. That's not what he says either. That's why so many people are laying out of work, isn't it? There are jobs available, but they won't take them. And the system, and more than that, let's not blame everything on the system, more than that, our human pride tells us that we deserve a certain kind of job that we're worthy of a certain amount of salary. And, again, I'm not working at McDonald's, we think to ourselves. Or I'm not working at X, and you fill in the blank. Or we say to ourselves, I don't have to take that job because it's more labor-intensive and less financially lucrative than my last one, and so I'll just stay on unemployment. No, says Paul. Such persons we command to work you're not able to provide for yourself and you're physically capable of working, such persons we command to work. If 
finally, in verse 12, notice that Paul says such persons should do their work, quote, in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Reminders to the willfully unemployed busybody to stop tinkering around in everybody's business, to get a job and, and quiet himself down, and to stop living off of everybody's paycheck, but to provide for himself and his family. Now, all of us who have time on our hands, extra time for one reason or the other, whatever it may be, need to heed these guidelines. We need to stop tinkering in everyone's business. We need to work quietly and eat our own bread. That's the first part of the solution, he says. Everyone who's capable, go out and get a job. Now, the second part, he says, do not associate with a lazy person. And he's going to say this several times throughout the passage. Get a job. That's directed to the people who are unemployed. To the rest of the crowd, do not associate with a lazy person. Verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you've received from us. In other words, if a Christian, and notice that this instruction, verse 6, applies specifically to a brother who is unruly. If a Christian simply won't get busy, won't care for his family, won't pull his own weight, he says, don't associate with him. Shun him. Now that's hard, isn't it? It would be really hard if it's a family member or a friend or someone who's been in the church for a long time. But we must, in love, do what the Apostle says. And just notice that verse 6 is just like verse 12. Remember verse 12? We command you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the same thing here, doesn't he? We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a suggestion or a hope so or a try this out and see if it works. This is a command. And why would Paul tell us to do this? It's so difficult. It seems like it would backfire on us. Why does Paul tell us to do this, to have no dealings with the person who's unruly, who won't work? Well, he tells us in verse 14. Verse 14 applies to everything he said in the letter, uh, 2 Thessalonians, but specifically to this passage. If anyone does not obey our instructions, so that he will be pained. That's why. So that he will be put to shame. Again, I know that's hard because we live in a culture where, by and large, we don't believe anyone should ever have to feel ashamed. And sometimes as Christians, we interpret the Bible's love commands that way. And sometimes we should. There are times to protect the reputation of others. Love covers a multitude of sins. But here is a case where the loving thing to do is to uncover the person's shame. I know it sounds backwards, but that's what he says. Take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. This is the loving thing to do. If he refuses to work and fritters his life away, then he ought to feel ashamed. And for us to cover that up is to do him a disservice. We keep slapping this person on the back, telling him it's good to see him, pretending that all is well, and he'll never feel ashamed and he may never leave his sin. His wife and his children may never have enough to eat. Furthermore, says Paul, not only should you not associate with a lazy Christian, but you shouldn't feed him either. Shouldn't feed him either. We said this in verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Now we have a food pantry here at the church, and when people call up and come in, we give them two bags of groceries without asking any questions. We want to give that testimony to the lost, and remember these verses are particularly about the brother who won't feed himself or feed his family. But 
If someone keeps calling again and again, wanting food, and we talk to them, and I have, and if the person is unwilling to go out and look for a job, then what we have to do eventually is say, no, we can't give you any more food. It would be counterproductive to you for us to do that. And as hard as it is, you and I may have to say that, not just to some stranger that comes into the food pantry every now and again. We may have to say that to family members or dear friends, to our own children sometimes, for their own good. Because again, if we keep giving them just enough Vienna sausages and just enough potato chips to get by, then they'll never be hungry enough to dig themselves out of their hole. The goal... The goal is not simply to treat them harshly. The goal is restoration. And the motive is love. Isn't that what Paul says in verse 15? Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. It's important to read that after you read verse 14. Verse 14 is hard. It's difficult. We must do it. But it's not to be done in a spirit of arms folded and nose in the air, we don't have anything to do with you. It's to be done in a spirit of love and a desire to admonish and restore your brother. There are appropriate ways to act and appropriate ways to speak and appropriate tones of voice to use when you do it. But it is to act in love. And I want to point out to you that it wasn't until he was starving to death in the pig slot that the prodigal son came to his senses. And it may not be for your family or friends until they're starving to death or having some other kind of crisis that they're willing to come to theirs. So it's important that we obey what Paul says and that we do it with the motive of love. So, we have things like keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And if anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, do not associate with him. We said this on Wednesday night, and I'm going to say it again. There is plenty enough material here for many of us to leave today proud and angry. Angry at, quote, all those slackers who are living off my tax dollars. And proud because I've worked for everything I've ever gotten in life. And if that's the way that we leave today, this message will have been a failure and we will be in bad shape. Do we have to take Paul's instruction seriously? Yes. But that doesn't mean that we can do so with a spirit of vengeance or of pride. So we need, before we close the book of 2 Thessalonians, to make sure that we take note of Paul's, Paul's final words in verse 18. How does he close out this passage in this book? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Again, don't think that Paul is just trying to figure out a way to come to a conclusion. This is an intentional sentence. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What a way to end with grace, especially after all that he's just said. What a way to end grace from the Lord Jesus Christ to you all. It's a reminder that if we ever do anything for the Lord, if we actually are working in a quiet fashion and eating our own bread, it was God and His grace that gave us the will and the strength to work. We work hard not because we're good people, but because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that is within us. We have nothing over which to boast this morning. We have no reason to be angry with others. Here in verse 18 is also a reminder, isn't it, that we're not saved by our own work. 
We are not saved by our own work. We're saved by grace. We're saved by the work of Jesus, who fully obeyed His Father for 33 years, who obeyed even to the point of death on a cross so that we might be forgiven. It's a reminder, we're not saved by the sweat of our brow, but by the blood that Jesus sweat in Gethsemane and by the blood that He spilled at the cross. So on a day when the message has been about work, the exhortation has been to work, let's remember that if we do, Philippians 2, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, it's only because it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And let's remember on a day when we've been encouraged to work hard for the Lord, that it is by grace we have been saved, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, through faith not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Father, we want to take Paul very seriously, and we know that it's hard, but perhaps the place to start is to remember that we've been recipients of Your grace. We have been recipients of Your grace. God, the only reason why we're able to work is because You've made us healthy. The only reason why You're willing to work is because Your Spirit has come and changed us. But by Your grace, we could be like so many others in our world who are weighed down with a multitude of sins, not just this particular one. Certainly the place to start and the place to finish is by reminding ourselves that as recipients of Your grace, we need not work our way to heaven. We work to feed ourselves. We work to support ministry. But we need not work our way to heaven. Indeed, if we've done everything that Paul says in this passage today, we still haven't done enough to cover our sins. We can never do enough. So, Father, let us leave today humbled. Let us leave today with compassion on those around us who are struggling with this issue. Let us leave today with a loving resolve to do what's right and wisdom on how to do it. Let us leave today thrilled with Jesus. He came and gave His life for people who don't do what they should. Like me and like us. We thank You for Him and we pray in His name. Amen.